welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 92, The State versus the Theatre, Part 2, Elizabeth. Last time, I took you through some of the extant documents that mapped the progress of theatre through the reigns of Henry VIII, Edward VI and Mary. That leaves the reign of just one more of Henry's children to discuss, Elizabeth. Her reign is generally seen as one of greater stability and prosperity than that of Mary and Edward, but she and the country faced many challenges as religious reform continued, the threat from Spain fluctuated and uncertainties over the succession continued. For theatre, it is seen as the golden age, where many great playwrights and one genius in particular flourished. But did that happen because of the freedoms they were granted or because of the constraints they worked under? I'm not sure that that is a question that can ever be fully unpicked, but it's certainly true that the playwrights and players lived in interesting times. By the time Elizabeth took the throne in 1558, the stage players and theatre owners had been operating under relatively stable rules for a few years. Ever since the Act of Supremacy was passed in 1530, responsibility for the control of theatre had passed from the church to the crown. That position hadn't changed in 30 years, despite Mary's recent attempts to reverse the legislation, something Parliament steadfastly resisted. But for practical purposes, local control was still most effectively applied by town magistrates and councillors and the aldermen of the City of London. These locals had the right to assess, censor and even ban plays, but they did so at the behest of the Crown and could, in theory at least, be held to account if they overstepped or neglected their duties. Ever since Henry VII enacted laws concerning the movement of liveried men and household retainers, the acting troops had been under some form of state control. His son's laws about the control of vagabonds and beggars only clarified those earlier rules and made sure that all actors only moved around the country under the authority and responsibility of their lord. When Edward VI added his own restrictions to the laws affecting actors, it meant that any unauthorised player could be tried for breaching the king's peace and sedition, both very serious charges. But for all the controls that there were, there was still one significant weakness in the state's point of view. These penalties could only be applied after an offence had been committed. As we saw in the case of the scholars of Cambridge University putting on the anti-Catholic play Pamachius, the state only had the options of pressuring those in charge to prevent a production, as Bishop Gardiner clearly expected his vice-chancellor at the university to have done, or to prosecute and ban after a performance had been given. Although the Privy Council had been thinking on this issue through the reigns of Edward and Mary, it remained unresolved as Elizabeth came to the throne. Her accession coincided with the rise in the number of playing troops and particularly in London in the number of performances given. In a 20-year period from 1563, the vagrancy laws were updated at least four times in an attempt to keep up to date with a changing social situation. Elizabeth's first act as Queen was to reverse Mary's attempted five years of Catholic restoration. She introduced a revised version of Edward's Act of Uniformity, which restored the Book of Common Prayer to obligatory use. It also introduced a passage reiterating the responsibility of players and entertainers towards the Book of Common Prayer and its contents. It went as follows. And it is ordained and enacted by the authority aforesaid, that any person or persons whatsoever, 
after the said feast of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist next coming, shall in any interludes, plays, songs, rhymes, or by other open words, declare or speak anything in derogation, deprivation, or despising of the same book, or anything therein contained, that every such person, being therefore lawfully convicted in the form aforesaid, shall forfeit to the Queen, and then follows the same list of graduated fines that accompanied Edward's original statute. You'll remember that these were severe monetary fines, culminating in life imprisonment for repeated offence. Elizabeth's version is, however, explicit that capital punishment does not apply to these crimes, and that they are only concerned with the prevention of riots that might likely occur in the presence of heretical thoughts expressed on stage. This was then followed up by two proclamations that banned interludes for a period, again very much in the vein of Edward's previous proclamations. This is part of the second one from May 1559. For as much as the time wherein common interludes in the English tongue are wont usually to be played is now past until all hallowtide, and that also some that have been of late used are not convenient in any Christian commonweal to be suffered, the Queen's Majesty doth strictly forbid all manner interludes to be played, either openly or privately, except the same be notified beforehand and licensed within any city or town corporate by the mayor or other chief officials of the same, and within any shire by such as shall be lieutenants of the Queen's Majesty in the same shire, or by two justices of the peace inhabiting within that part of the shire where they shall be played. And for instruction of every of the said officers, Her Majesty does likewise charge every one of them, as they will answer, that they permit none to be played, wherein either matters of religion or of the governance of the estate of the Commonwealth shall be handled or treated, being no meet matters to be written or treated upon but by men of authority, learning and wisdom, not to be handled before any audience but of grave and discreet persons. And just a few months later, proclamations relating to the printing of books and plays were issued. The June 1559 proclamation first reiterates the need for all published books to have Privy Council or equivalent approval, and then it says, And because many pamphlets, plays and ballads be oft-times printed, wherein regard would have had nothing therein, should be either heretical, seditious or unseemly for Christian ears, Her Majesty likewise commandeth, that no matter of person shall enterprise to print any such, except the same that shall be licensed by such Her Majesty's commissioners. Those appointed commissioners, who included Matthew Parker, now Archbishop of Canterbury, were given authority on behalf of the Queen to inspect books and plays for publication, and to inquire for all offences, misdoers and misdemeanours, contrary to the tenor and effect of the said several acts and statutes and either of them, and to hear, and determine, all the premises, and to visit, reform, redress, order, correct, and amend errors, heresies, crimes, abuses, offences, contempt, and enormities spiritual and ecclesiastical. As a reiteration of Edward's proclamations, this may not have worried the theatre-makers too much. They were used to dealing with this landscape, and at least it looked like things might be a little more stable than under Mary's rule. But if any of them noticed the concluding paragraph, they might have been rightly more concerned. The wording charged the commissioners, 
to inquire of and search out all ruleless men, quarrellers, vagrant and suspect persons within our city of London and ten miles compass about the same city. And for all assaults and affray is done and committed within the same city and the compass aforesaid. Although Elizabeth kept a reasonably relaxed attitude to theatre in the early part of her reign, this clause would be used in later years to support the more puritanical chasing down of plays and playhouses in London. A useful tool in her kit was the ever-present threat of infection, and particularly of the plague. It was recognised that illnesses transmitted freely in crowds, and that the theatre was quickly becoming a major factor in the spread of disease. Strangely, the same logic was never applied to gatherings in church. Plague had been present in the country at regular intervals in the preceding years, but the first visitation of the pestilence in Elizabeth's reign came in June 1563, when it arrived in London. For a full six months, the infection raged through the population, killing its thought upwards of 200,000 people. Towards the end of winter, things were getting better, but the Lord Mayor was concerned about the resurgence of the infection in the warmer summer months ahead, amongst the crowds in confined spaces. A precept was issued in the name of the Lord Mayor and the Queen that ended and do therefore straightly charge and command on our Sovereign Lady the Queen's Majesty's behalf that no manner of persons or persons do from henceforth take upon him or them to set forth or openly or privately play or to permit or suffer to be set forth or played within his or her mansion, house, yard, common garden, orchard or other whatsoever place or places within the said city or the liberties thereof any manner of interlude or stage play at any time hereinafter without the special licence of the said Lord Mayor first had and obtained for the same upon pain of imprisonment of their bodies at the discretion of the said Lord Mayor and the Alderman. By many, the plague was seen as a message from God, either one criticising the behaviour of the population or the direction of the rule of the country. As a response to the banning of performances in 1564, the Bishop of London took the moral tone, but avoided, not surprisingly, any criticism of the Queen. He sees the problem as one of the common players and the people they attract. He wrote to the Privy Councillor, Sir William Cecil, saying, By search I do perceive that there is no one thing of late is more like to have renewed this contagion than the practice of an idle sport of people which have been infamous in all good commonwealths. I mean these history owners, common players, who now daily, but specially on holy days, set up bills whereunto the youth resorted exclusively and there take the infection. Besides that God's word by their impure mouth is profaned and turned into scoffs. For remedy whereof, in my judgment, ye do very well to be a mean that a proclamation was set forth to inhibit all plays for one whole year, and if it were for ever, it were not amiss, within the city or three miles compass, upon pains as well as to the players as to the owners of the houses where they play their lewd interludes. The bishop's suggestion of a complete ban on plays was never taken up, and over the next five years there was a reduction in the cases of plague to a very minimal level as the infection went through one of its cyclical low points. It returned in March 1569, and performances were again banned from the beginning of June to the end of September. This hiatus was then further extended into the winter as cases remained high. 
I find it always surprising to read that performances of plays and interludes were allowed on Sundays. As I mentioned before, Sunday and Holy Days were one of the few days when all of the public were free to enjoy entertainments, so players were keen to perform there on the prospect of attracting a good crowd. The debate about the probity of Sunday performances came and went over the decades. Bishop Gardner first seriously raised it in 1547, which resulted in a temporary ban on advertising Sunday performances, and it came to the fore again in the early 1560s, coming from a moral point of view. But it wasn't until 1566 that the city aldermen brought in serious legislation to curtail the players' activities on Sundays. There had been local bylaws in some parts of the city that forced the owner of the playing space to lodge a monetary bond that would be lost if the plays were allowed on a Sunday or before a certain time on a Sunday, usually later in the afternoon. In January 1569, these rules were taken and adopted for the whole city and its environs where the aldermen had jurisdiction. In fact, 1568 and 1569 saw a series of decrees and proclamations from the city amending and enhancing the rules amidst continued concern for the return of the plague. It looks like they were coming down hard, but the need for repeated decrees suggests that the playing troops were continually finding ways to work around the latest rules. Away from London, Elizabeth and her council were also aware that in the north the Corpus Christi plays were still being regularly performed and, with a few high-profile exceptions, many local performances had in fact never stopped. It's a good reminder that the control of the north of England was not as simple as we might assume. The Crown more or less held control through the great families of the north, some of whom supported the Tudor dynasty wholeheartedly, but there were others who were de facto kings in their lands and their support for the king or queen was pragmatic at best. It makes for a somewhat confused picture. In the earliest years of her reign, there's no evidence that rules suppressing plays were being continually broken in the provinces. But you will remember that Elizabeth's predecessors all had to ask their agents in the north to check into, and in some cases suppress, theatricals on tour. But no such records from Elizabeth's early reign exist. It seems likely that the Corpus Christi plays were allowed to continue in some places in a reduced form, particularly in the north. But public enthusiasm for them waned, and in the south particularly, they died out without the need for formal sanction. The last record we have of a new cycle play is from Norwich in 1565. But just five years later, the pageant guild in Norwich had to sell off its props, costumes and equipment to pay off their debts before they closed down completely. After hundreds of years, public enthusiasm for the traditional cycle play had finally died. From the north of the country in this period, we know that touring professional players were in operation, but the details come from just one document that has survived. In a letter from June 1559 to the Lord President of the North, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester and sponsor of one of the earliest, if not the earliest, acting troupe, seeks permission for his players to perform in Yorkshire. By doing this, he's acting in accordance with the proclamation of May 1559 that required all plays to be licensed before public performance. Just a year after her accession to the throne, Elizabeth faced a rebellion in the North. Given the tensions of the previous decades and the conflicting legacies left by Henry and his children, this was really no surprise. Elizabeth's legitimacy could be easily questioned, 
and a viable and potent rival existed in the form of her cousin Mary, who had Catholic support and a realistic claim to the throne. She arrived in England in May 1568 in full flight from Scotland. Although she was initially treated well, if cautiously, by Elizabeth, she soon became involved in plots against her cousin and rebellion broke out. The rebellion in the north was put down by a force sent out from London and its leaders quickly dispersed into Scotland. Treason trials followed and finally, and reluctantly, Elizabeth signed Mary's death warrant and she was executed in February 1587. The rebellion and Mary's presence as a focus was a good excuse to clamp down on dissent, particularly in the North, and as part of this, the Corpus Christi plays were finally formally suppressed in a series of laws between 1574 and 1581. In fact, all of the national security legal framework was reviewed, and that process only received a boost when Elizabeth was excommunicated in 1570 by a papal bull issued by Pius V, a document that called on all citizens to rise up and depose the Queen. For nearly 50 years, the state had used plays and players in the propaganda battle, and holders of opposing views had fought back with the same tools. So it's no surprise that plays and players feature large in the legislation of the period. First, the travelling players were targeted. The existing laws from 1531 concerning vagrants were revised and extended to explicitly include all actors and entertainers claiming to earn a living from touring plays outside of their own county boundaries. From 1573, there's a note from the Privy Council to the Lord Mayor of London asking him to permit liberty to certain Italian players to make show of an instrument of stage motions within the city. Although this reference is a bit vague, it's thought to refer to a troop of Commedia dell'arte players, or perhaps Italian puppeteers, who were visiting the city, and the council wanted to be sure that it was clear that they did have permission to perform. The Earl of Leicester's men received a much wider dispensation in 1574, when they were issued with a royal patent that permitted them to perform comedies, tragedies, interludes and stage plays, as well within the City of London and liberties of the same, as also within the liberties and freedoms of any of our cities, towns, boroughs and co, whatsoever as without the same throughout our realm England. But the patent also provided that all plays had to be reviewed and licensed before performance, and that none would be published or performed at times of plague in the City of London. The aldermen of the city took exception to the inclusion of their jurisdiction in the patent, seeing it as an attempt by the Privy Council to increase their influence in the city by stealth, and they issued their own edict six months later. Their opening salvo was a moralistic one, accusing the players of evil practices of inconstancy in great inns, having chambers and secret places adjoining to their open stages and galleries, inveiging and alluring of maids, specially orphans and good citizens' children under age, to privy and unmeet contacts, the publishing of unchaste, uncomely and unshamed fast speeches and doings, withdrawing of the Queen's Majesty's subjects from divine service on Sundays and holy days, unthrifty waste of the money of the poor and fond persons, sundry robberies by picking and cutting of purses, 
uttering of popular, busy and seditious matters, and many corruptions of youth and other enormities besides, that also sundry slaughters and many harmings of the Queen's subjects have happened by ruins of scaffold, frames of stages, and by engines, weapons and powder used in plays. Clearly that is hyperbolic and exaggerated for effect, and it continues by blaming the playhouses for the spread of the plague before issuing the latest restrictions. Now, therefore, to the intent and such perils as may be avoided, and the lawful, honest and comely use of plays, pastimes, and restrictions, and recreations in good sort only permitted, and good provision had for our safety and well-ordering of the people there assembled, be it enacted by the authority of this common council, that from henceforward no play, comedy, tragedy, interlude, nor public show shall be openly played or showed within the liberties of the city, wherein shall be uttered any words, examples, or doings of any unchastity, sedition, or such like unfit and uncomely matter, upon pain of imprisonment by the space of fourteen days for all persons offending in any such open playing or showings, and five pounds for each such offence. The edict also suggests that theatre receipts could be taxed by the city to support its work in relief of the poor. This, and the £5 fine, was probably enough to make the theatre owners wary of arranging any performance that wasn't licensed by the city, even if it was sanctioned by the Master of the Revels. The edict then adds qualifications that allow for the aldermen to license performances and exempts any revels organised by the mayor or the aldermen themselves. As so often with the legislation from this period, we see that the lawmakers were trying to sound severe and censorious, but always left a way through for theatre to continue as a mass entertainment for the public, and a nice privilege for themselves. It sounds to me like they were trying to protect the banquet interludes that would have been part of their lives as much as the public playhouses. Many of the surviving documents concern restrictions due to the plague. This is no surprise. Between 1570 and 1581, there were five significant recurrences of the, of the plague in London, so it was an almost constant concern for the governing authorities. But throughout, there are also documents relating to unlicensed performances, the non-payment of taxes, the illegal posting of advertising and breaches of the peace in and around theatres. Centralising government control was always a difficult matter, and not always a desirable or practical option, but in one area Henry had left his daughter a useful tool. The creation of the Revels Office to be part of the monarch's household, with the master responsible to the Lord Chamberlain, was the bedrock on which the Tudor solution to theatre censorship was built. The first master of the Revels was Sir Thomas Carwarden. Appointed by Henry, he served in the position until his death in 1559. He was succeeded by Sir Thomas Benger, who was given a lifetime appointment and a staff of three. But he seems to have lost interest in the role and it fell to his clerk, Thomas Blagrave, to organise the court entertainments. By 1573, the office was failing to pay its debts and a full review was instigated. When Benger conveniently died, a new master, Edmund Tilney, was appointed and invested with the following power to purchase at reasonable prices all raw materials needed for the construction of costumes, properties and settings. To hire all carriages for the same, 
both by land and water. To punish anyone who will obstinately disobey or refuse to accomplish and obey our commandment and pleasure in that behalf or withdraw themselves from our said works with imprisonment for as long as the master himself regards as appropriate for the offence. To protect anyone working from this office from arrest or to secure the immediate release of anyone who has been so arrested should these workmen have a clause in their contract for other work specifying a deadline. That last clause meant that workmen were not to be sued for failing to meet the deadlines for their other work, provided that they returned promptly to that work when Tilney had discharged them. Nothing was going to get in the way of the entertainment of the Queen and the court, including any previous unpaid debts that the workmen might feel were due to them. More significantly, Tilney was granted sweeping powers to censor plays and players in the following paragraph of the same document. And furthermore, also we have and do by these presents authorise and command our servant Edmund Tilney, master of the said revels, by himself or his sufficient deputy or deputies to warn, command and appoint in all places within this our realm of England, as well within franchises and liberties as without, all and every player or players with their playmakers, either belonging to a nobleman or otherwise bearing the name or names or using the facility of playmakers or players of comedies, tragedies, interludes or what other show so ever from time to time and at all times to appear before him with such plays, tragedies, comedies or shows as they shall have in readiness or mean to set forth and then to present and recite before our said servant or his sufficient deputy, whom we ordain and appoint and authorise, by these presents all such shows, plays, players and playmakers, together with their playing places, to order and reform, authorise and put down, as shall be thought meet or unmeet, unto himself or his said deputy in that behalf. And once again, punishment for non-compliance was at the discretion of the Master of the Revels. At the heart of the problem for Elizabeth and her council was that until about the time of her accession, players performed in a variety of spaces, and the idea of a purpose-built permanent theatre was only just becoming thought about by the early adopters. The combination of performances being given privately, in homes, or publicly with local approvals in the most appropriate space available, made formatting legislation difficult. The Playhouse was a new thing, and legislation was always reactive. As we've seen in previous episodes, once players were established in permanent buildings where some security of tenure was needed, disputes arose, and as the number of performances and the associated gathered crowds increased, some form of control became not only inevitable, but desirable for the maintaining of the Queen's peace. And as that popularity of the playhouses grew, the church redoubled its efforts to shut them down. The theatre, the argument went, was distracting people, and particularly young people, from their obligation from the church on Sunday. What a surprise that young people seemed to prefer going to the theatre than attending a church service that included a long sermon that most often than not reminded you that your eternal soul was already hopelessly damned for eternity. But Elizabeth resisted these calls. The greatest of the acting troops were not only championed by some of her own most important supporters, but operated in her name. 
To give in completely to the calls of the clergy and those in the City of London and other towns who would see theatre banned would have been to give up prerogatives that the Crown had carefully crafted since the reign of her grandfather. The tension between the City of London, the Privy Council and the Court continued through to the end of Elizabeth's reign. Eventually, the players moved out of the inns and took the public playhouses that in turn moved outside of the city and out of the direct jurisdiction of the city while still benefiting from the proximity of the large population within its walls. It was a continuing frustration for the city aldermen and the Lord Mayor that they could not fully control or directly financially benefit from the new phenomenon of the London Playhouse. It isn't possible to say how far the court and the Privy Council manipulated that situation or if the players would have found their home naturally outside of the city walls anyway. But the implication is that the Queen was happy to allow theatre to continue while trying to curb its most rebellious instincts. This was the tightrope that Elizabeth chose to walk and as with other tricky paths that she walked during her reign, she did it quite successfully. So Elizabeth's reign can be summarised into three parts. For the first decade of her reign, she seemed happy to maintain the status quo as far as theatre legislation went. The existing framework preserved from Edward VI's time was doing a decent job at keeping heresy and seditious opinion in check, although the issue of pre-performance censorship remained unresolved. But when Mary fled from Scotland to England and became Elizabeth's prisoner and more present problem, and in the wake of rebellion in the north and that papal bull that called on all citizens to rise up against their queen, Elizabeth and her council saw a real and pleasant need to increase controls on what was said on stage and the movement of acting companies through the country. This was a matter of national security as far as Elizabeth was concerned, and over the next 15 years or so, she and her council worked at suppressing the last of the old cycle plays, making the censorship process efficient and effective, and generally controlling players and particularly the London playhouses. However, the impression given by the extant evidence is that it was still a reactive approach and often driven by the public health concerns raised by the regular recurrence of the plague. The last 20 years of Elizabeth's reign gave no let-up in the national security concerns. Threats from Spain and France, with the encouragement of the Pope, were a real threat to Protestantism and to Elizabeth's life, so that there was a tightening of censorship and control of the stage. New powers given to the Master of the Revels and an incumbent master who took his work seriously resulted in stricter and more effective application of the laws in regard to censorship. And more latterly, in 1589, a licensing commission was set up to control the building of new playhouses in and near London as the number of active troops increased. That increase continued over the best part of a decade until in 1597 further restrictions were added to limit the number of acting troops authorised to perform. In 1602, the year the Queen died, agreement was reached between the Privy Council and the City of London and County Magistrates that authorised three acting troops and three public playhouses. The managers and owners were to be held directly responsible to the Lord Chamberlain and the Master of the Revels. The days and times of performances were to be pre-approved in every case, and the licence fees and taxes were to be handed by the theatre owners directly to the office of their masters. The theatre and the acting profession were, it seemed, here to stay in an endorsed, 
but heavily controlled form. There is yet another part to the state versus the theatre, the part that looks at the reign of Elizabeth's successor, James I. But we'll return to that later in the season, as we now need to go back in the timeline to the earliest plays. So next time, we'll move onwards but backwards. I hope the last five episodes have given you a good framework in which to understand how the plays and playmakers of the period had to work. The constraints and opportunities of the time have a direct impact on the plays written and produced. And next time, we'll take a look at the very earliest of those plays and playwrights. In the meantime, if you missed the previous bonus episode where I talked to actor Colin David Rees about the first folio of Shakespeare's plays and his one-man show, Shakespeare Unbound, please do go and have a listen to that. The story of how the first folio came into being and the impact it had is a really interesting one and Colin tells it with enthusiasm and a deep interest from an actor's point of view. That will be on your podcast feed as a bonus episode or on the website under Seasons and Bonus Episodes. You could also join the Facebook page or group and find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help to support the podcast, there are additional episodes available on Patreon, which you can access for a small monthly fee. They cover a range of theatre history-related subjects from all periods that the main podcast has covered and a few more recent subjects too. I'm currently working on several episodes that will directly support the details you are hearing in these episodes on the early Tudor theatre. If you're interested in any of these but can't stretch for a monthly commitment, I can offer a bespoke feed of specific episodes for a one-off payment. You can find details of this on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. Once there, just follow the links to Patreon episodes on the main menu, where you'll find a list and a short description of all the available episodes. Thanks again to everyone who already supports the podcast, and to all of you for listening. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.